Welcome back, everyone, to Southern Tom Foolery Unlimited. I'm your host, Zach Evans, joined, as always, by my good friend, Adam Kelly. Adam, how's it going, buddy? It's going pretty good. Pretty good. Staying dry. That's all you can ask for. Well, I am pretty excited because today we have a very special guest, uh, a name many of you out there will no doubt be familiar with already. He's a senior developer at Paizo, Mr. John Compton. Welcome hey. to the show, John. Thanks for coming. How are you this evening? I'm overall doing pretty well. It's uh, already a good start to the weekend. and Certainly when it comes to the day job, lots of cool projects happening. Oh, absolutely. And that's why we're here to talk to you today. Uh, but first, let's talk a little bit about you. So, before Paizo, you were uh, an archaeologist, is that right? Yeah, I did a combination of archaeology and teaching. Um, archaeology work was... The opportunities that are available outside of academia can be a little hit or miss. Um, sure. And I decided that... So it's not all Indiana Jones? <laughs> uh, it's, almost, it's almost never Indiana Jones. Uh, really, any part of any of those movies, uh, except for some of the scenes with heavy drinking, like those those are sometimes accurate. Yeah, or like the, the like 30-second classroom scenes. Yeah, but that, that involves a whole lot more adoration than actually happens. Ah, right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I, I basically... The more that I worked in the public sphere, the less that I was excited about quite what opportunities existed for me in archaeology, and the more that I leaned toward teaching or trying to pursue academia. Um, but I ended up doing a whole bunch of K-12 through tutoring and teaching um, for about two, three years before I started working at Paizo, or joined Paizo full-time, that is. Sure. Um, so, teaching all sorts well, of stuff. Well, what, you know, what led you to archaeology? What makes you passionate about that field of study, or did make you passionate, I guess, until you got deep into it? I mean, I got raised a lot on uh, history and documentaries and going to various historical sites as a kid, so I think there was a nugget of interest uh, in my past. Um, but by the time that I went to uh, undergraduate college, I had only a vague sense of what I might want to study. And then I saw the list of all the different offerings and said, oh, wow, look at all these things. Ooh, anthropology, that's, that is a thing that people do. Very exciting. And so it was <laughs> just sort of a happening to come across it in a, in a pamphlet and saying, oh, I like archaeology. Let's try that out. Actually, I guess um, I'd done a couple of summer programs um, for like lab sciences, and uh, one of them was archaeology. So that, thinking back to it, that is more of what started things off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that sounds awesome. Like, it, it seems like it would be a really interesting field if you were actually doing like field work, right? If you were actually out there digging things up and discovering them. I think that would be the, the exciting part. Maybe, I don't know, teaching just wasn't for you, though? No, teaching definitely was. Um, okay. I like the field work, fantastic. Teaching, love it. I, I absolutely adore being able to convey information to an excited audience. Um, and even helping people work through whatever roadblocks might exist for them in, in understanding material uh, and sharing sharing the spark of, of, of curiosity and excitement. So that certainly has helped me when it comes to like Paizo and RPGs with demoing games and whatnot and saying, oh, wow, I'm excited about this. You should be excited, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So that Absolutely. helps. But, but it, it was more um, the particular opportunities that are available in, in the U.S. Um, in the public sphere are more what are called cultural resource management, which is where somebody's about to build something. You bring in a team of archaeologists to dig a couple of test pits 
and say, you are not going to disrupt any historical sites here. We think we're pretty sure. And then you leave. Uh, And only rarely do you actually interact with artifacts or full sites either. At least, granted, in the slightly less than a year that I was participating in that particular version. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, to to tie in archaeology and RPGs, on the Paizo People page, we do get a glimpse of your stats, John, and I see that you have a Combat Archaeologist 1, Scheming Troubleshooter 2, Inspired Orator 1. So, to me, that sounds like a pretty good start for an Indiana Jones build. But, do you think that your build is optimized for your profession, or would you like a reroll? I mean, I, f- I feel like the more that... I would have chosen some feats that allow me to uh, handle background noise and isolation <laughs> better, at least in 2020. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of my background that has really played well to my current job. Um, and I mean, a part of that background is, frankly, having spent... Uh, 20 or so years noodling around with, or 30 years or so, uh, noodling around with RPGs at this point, including, of course, the essential, wow, I was in middle school, wow, I sure was in high school, oh boy, that sure was a college game, where you look back <laughs> and you say, those were terrible. Um, <laughs> but they give you the experience to recognize horrendous mistakes early on. Um, and so, I would not have the same level of proficiency in my current job my ability to pick out possible issues like I do if I hadn't spent at least a decade being a complete and utter doofus at the table well <laughs> yeah you gotta learn some somehow I suppose uh, be it with the archaeology background like I imagine there's gotta be times as you're developing the kind of the lore in the worlds of the games that you're like putting things in there that you would like to have dug up if you had the opportunities that is like are there certain things that you in inject there specifically because i know that this would be like an archaeologist dream to to discover this i mean i do a little bit of that um one of the things that archaeology really does is it teaches that you are not so much you know the creator of something you are the interpreter you are really a storyteller as an archaeologist and you're working off of the few cues and clues that you're provided with whatever's in the ground or otherwise. Um, So it kind of conveys the idea that like of all the inspirations in the world, um, you're there as a game designer as well, interpreting and funneling those and and to a degree reshaping them into new stories. But you're, you're nonetheless borrowing upon existing tropes and myths and ideas and so you have to consistently look back to the source material, but you also have to help. You are telling the story a bit yourself, but you also need to be looking to whoever the inheritors of that legacy are so that you can bring them in to help tell the story that is far more personal to them than it is to necessarily me, who is more looking at it as a white guy saying, Ooh, wow, that sure sounds wildly cool. Um, right. <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's put in some of those. They have 15 eyes. You know, Okay, sure. Um, so, so there's a bit of that, um, which for RPGs is is increasingly common practice of you know, bringing in sensitivity readers or consultants or uh, folks of particular um, ethnic backgrounds or religious identities or the like to 
tell the story with their voice um, so we can expand upon sort of the Western fantasy roots of tabletop RPGs and expand them into all sorts of different forms of narrative. And archaeology kind of helps put in put people in the mindset for that. For sure, for sure. I, I imagine it at least helps you kind of um, organize it in, in such a way through through that lens of like having different cultures represented kind of with just little bits, but then having that expanded by other perspectives, you know. And, well, yeah. you want to tell accurate stories. You know, you you, you, you want to be you want to be true to the thing that you're borrowing the material from. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, I think that's important, and um, it's something that is an ongoing process with with you know, Western RPGs and and I guess with you guys as developers, it's something that I think definitely uh, can enrich those worlds that you're creating. So, John, how long you said you've been playing for for quite a while or been involved with TTRPGs for? Uh, decades, you said? How, how did you get into them? What what led you to the hobby? Uh, so I am the youngest of three, and uh, even when it comes to my few cousins, uh, I'm on the young side. So I had a cousin who's older than me by about maybe 12 years or so, who was very much into D&D at the time that I was maybe six, um, and decided to give my uh, older brother and me uh, Jeez, uh, it was the advanced manual for D&D. It's the blue cover one with a wizard who seems to have a weird cupped hand. Um, light reading so, for a six-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, my brother and me did kind of some, like, free-form adventure stuff, and eventually he mm-hmm. saved up for some form of intro box set thing that was available at Toys R Us or the like. And, um, and so played through that. But um, so, so in a way, like, my cousin Tim brought me into it really early. In a way, my brother George brought me into it. At the same time, uh, like, my brother and me have sort of, uh, we have a long tradition of territoriality, where <laughs> if one of us has a hobby, then the other one would not do it. Um, and so he kind of brought us in, <laughs> my friends and me, into uh, play D&D for a while, and then he went off and played with his friends. But uh, sort of of the opinion with, where the, it's co- like, with the cooler with the cooler D and D players, right? With the such older, a, such as they are, um, yes, right, right. And, <laughs> if that exists, um, you know. So he had he had like four Dragon magazines. I remember, and I remember like any time he was out of the house, I would sneak in and like start reading articles. So there's a cer- certain level of forbidden fruit to D and D that um, I didn't have the dice. I didn't have the books because I have like a dollar per week allowance or something like that. Right. So it's like, okay, <laughs> how, how are the different ways that I'm going to process these things? And I remember like when I was 10 trying to run a friend through a one-shot adventure of my own design based on the 1993 D&D trading cards um, and a life board game spinner which is a one through ten so i thought that if you spun it two times it would replicate a d20 not understanding probability (laughs) (laughs) so like um so it was that level of you know well i didn't know any better uh bs but i was trying to work with what i had so I, i every time that i gained access to something new then it was another way of like expanding about doing it right um and so by the time that i was running um D&D 2nd Edition campaigns for a couple of friends uh, at 
the beginning of high school, then I I already felt I'd been through the flames of uh, the trial by fire. And no, yeah, I, yeah, you earned that. your stripes. No, I was still doing dumb stuff, <laughs> and did for at least another decade. Well, I mean, we you know we all do. It's 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 one of those things that I, I don't think you can effectively. Or, or or play with a high level of, of awareness and skill until you've done it for a while. I think it's one of those things that... Um, I don't think that new players should be as nervous about getting into it as they are because it is one of those hobbies that... It, it's it's going to be a learning process for many, many years as you go, and you're constantly going to uh, get new ideas and, and, and develop better habits, how to be a better player at the table. Yeah, but that's one of the that's one of the nice things about uh, having podcasts and actual play streams and the like is that uh, on one hand, yeah, it takes a while to gain the experience to feel like a fully realized player or a good GM, whatever it is that you <laughs> you determine as success. Um, but like my friends and I were kind of figuring it out for ourselves. We had some we had some very loose role models who had taught us certain parts of the game but by and large it was we noodle around we're in high school we're jerks um whereas when you're brought into an existing community then you have these experienced people who can mentor you who can show you what goes into creating a good narrative who can go into saying hey what is good citizenship in a gaming group and gaming community and that's something that actual play podcasts can do that's something that organized play programs can do uh because they give you that exposure and can really help somebody jump up to whatever level they want to be really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of organized play, uh, I know that you have a very active role in Paizo organized play. So other than what you've mentioned, what really draws you to this that particular style of play? I don't know. Maybe you might want to explain what organized play is very quickly for some people who may not be familiar with it. But yeah. Yeah, so uh, there are two major forms of gaming or categories of gaming uh, when it comes to your community organization. One of them is a home game. That is where you have the same group of people or largely the same group of people, and you have a consistent storyline and characters and whatnot. Um, that's fantastic. It gives you a whole bunch of flexibility and, and narrative power. With organized play, you are playing in a more structured but much larger community where you have one or more characters that you play one at a time through pre-built adventures that usually are built to last somewhere around four hours. You get to play uh, with possibly some complete strangers at the table, but everybody's using the same set of home rules and core rules, um, so you can just sit down and start playing. You get some chronicle sheets or certificates or record sheets at the end that say, you played this thing, you gained this much gold, you gained this much experience points, kudos. And you can have your character level up so that you are playing within the same huge campaign setting, shared setting, as everybody else. And so that you can take that character, that ninth level paladin, and sit down and say, I have a ninth level paladin. And everybody says, fantastic, John, let's start gaming. Whereas if you take your ninth level paladin from a home game, or your champion that is, to use the second edition. Right, from right, right. Um, and you sit down and in somebody else's home game, and you're like, I'm going to play my ninth level paladin. And they say, well, that's nice. Um, First off, we're playing Starfinder, so <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but there's that sort of like you had a ninth level pal in another day game. Big whoop! Like this is completely different continuity right. and, and home setting. Uh, so there's there's not that immediate bridge to give you the access to all these other players. Whereas feels, uh, you can go to conventions <laughs> and like just sit down with people from all across the world, or you know, 
In 2019, you could go to conventions and sit down. Yeah, in the before times, yeah. It feels kind of like uh, um, almost like the MMO style of TTRPG to where it is this kind of shared world in that there are like dungeons or, you know, translated to adventures that that you run with with crews. And, and I, it's just, I think it's a really cool way to play the game. Like you're saying, it's 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 a plug and play at any any place. You know, you can find a, a seat and do it, you know? Yeah, and it, and it teaches you some very different but adaptable skills when it comes to interacting with groups. For example, learning what styles of roleplay and what jokes and what voices and whatnot have a more immediate resonance with people or are, you know, things that might have flown with a an isolated home group and you all laughed and said, haha, that is funny, and then you do it with complete strangers and they all look at you aghast and you can realize, oh, wait, maybe this is not actually a cool thing that I was doing. Or, um, <laughs> or you can learn how to do storytelling with your character by um, learning that you don't have to have like a whole year of background development with the same group in order to tell a good character story. I can sit down with my character, I can give you my 20 second introduction for a Starfighter Society character, you can say, oh wow, I know some stuff to go off of, and then we can start bantering and just sort of build up new relationships from there. Mm. Um, it, 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 there's, there's a degree of speed dating to it, where yeah. in a way, organized play is even, especially when you're in a, a uh, an in-person setting or community allows you to even build up what home group you want to create out of that community and it helps you meet people it lets you sit down and game with them for four to five hours and say i like you i like you i'm willing to stand you and i'm willing to come back here i <laughs> not so much <laughs> sort of person well maybe um and and then after you play with them some more you can be like you know what there's this cool adventure path that just came out uh three of you want to join me in doing this thing and there have been so many awesome groups that have formed because of that. That's awesome, right? Yeah. And and yeah, I think that's that's an, an incredible thing that uh, you, you know you're helping facilitate bringing to the community because it's it's really fascinating. And 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 for people who maybe want to get into organized play, local game stores, cons, all of these things we could do in the before times that that would be the best place to get into it. So that actually brings up a question how has organized play changed since you know since the pandemic like is there anything different that you're having to do are you organizing online games now or what yeah so before before 2020 uh paizo's organized play programs already had a really strong online contingent um both in terms of virtual tabletop gaming but also in terms of play-by-post there's a Mm -hmm. really strong following for play-by-post um including for me I, i i a uh, home group of mine uh, ended up doing some Pathfinder Society scenarios uh, as sort of a play by Discord, so halfway between virtual tabletop and play by post um, for about two months to really great success. Um, so, if anything, there has been more of that, and the online venture officers have been so ready to absorb all of these new participants and direct them and teach them. Uh, on top of that, though, uh, the basically from about May until early August is what the organized play program would oftentimes refer to as convention season. This kind of starts off with um, with PaizoCon, which is not, uh, normally at the very end of May on Memorial Day weekend, and usually ends kind of informally around Labor Day weekend when we have things like DragonCon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but especially has a big spike with Origins and Gen Con. Um, and so we create all these special adventures for these. We create even more adventures per month to debut at these things. This is where we kick off our new seasons, stuff like that. All of those this year have been moved online um, and have really had huge followings as a result. And one of the things that's been really cool is that in-person conventions have oftentimes been something that draws two different sorts of folks. Either these are the people who are, you know, within about one state of the convention, if we're talking from a United States perspective, and can make the trip pretty easily, um, or those who really have the means, both in terms of vacation days and flexibility, and in terms of finances, to travel. And for a long time, there's sort of been some soft pushback from various corners of the world of like, wow, sure would be cool to make it to Gen Con, but I live in, you know, Italy. Um, yeah. <laughs> When, when will there be Gen Con in Italy? Help me. Uh, <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, and moving online for all these things has helped a lot of folks uh, very economically participate in these huge events. So even though it has been a terrible loss not to be able to connect with so many people face-to-face, it has been a moral loss to not be in the Sagamore Ballroom while 1,200 people are simultaneously playing the same multi-table attractive special and you make an announcement and the whole place cheers. Uh, it is sad not to have, but it is wonderful to see that, if anything, these conventions have run even more tables of games it, it than they would have in amount. Yeah, yeah. We, were, we were pretty heavily uh, involved, you know, we participated a good bit in the PaizaCon online this year, and uh, that was a really cool thing because this was going to be our first PaizaCon. We had all like saved up and we were ready to go and do it. Got, and was, got yeah, our I mean, tickets. Yeah, yeah we, like, we had had my plane booked. We yeah. <laughs> um, were yeah, you know, taking off, and, and it happened the way it happened. And then PaizaCon online happened. That was such a cool thing. But there were so many games around that you know not to mention the ones that happened at gen con and all all the other online situations that are going on but i was just so blown away by the amount of organization that went into having that many tables just going like all weekend yeah and and that's certainly behind the scenes tanya woldridge is working a lot on that uh we've recently added in alex Bidel, uh who has been helping tanya with all of this organization and has been like everywhere <laughs> in terms of online <laughs> presence during these conventions. And of course, just the sheer number of venture officers and volunteer GMs who always make this sort of thing happen. So there's, even though there's been adversity and difficulty in changing the formats, there have been so many talented people ready to step up and step in to pull these games together. Yeah, that that's uh, really awesome. And, and it's, it's great to see, you know, how, how the the hobby is changing as a result of these changing circumstances. And I think in a lot of ways, like you said, it, it's growing. It's just in a different space. Um, but anyway, moving on. So, John, as a senior developer at Paizo, can you give us some insight, uh, you know, what exactly your role entails as it pertains to Starfinder and such? So the main thing that I do is I work on the hardcover books. Um, so at any given time, we usually have about... Uh, three, maybe four different hardcover books in various forms of concepting, uh, outlining, assignment uh, to writers, development, final touches, and the like. Um, so 
Uh, I work with, very closely with Joe Cassini, who is our design lead for Starfinder. Um, and between us, we sort of trade off on who's handling which hardcover books as the, the lead designer and developer for it. Uh, so I do a lot of rules development, um, and I do a solid amount of setting development. And when it comes to these hardcover books, even though we are as a team coming up with strategically what we need to accomplish with the product line and what we want to see out of it. Uh, once we've determined like, okay, we're going to go with, for example, Tech Revolution, which is the most recent one that we've uh, announced. Once we've determined that Tech Revolution is a thing, we're going to include this class, we want to include these couple subsystems, but otherwise broad strokes, uh, tech stuff. Um, then it falls to, in this case, me as the lead designer for, or the lead developer for it to create create that outline, to track down authors, to assign authors all these pieces, keep track of everything they're doing, provide feedback, and at this point, start checking in all of the manuscripts as they're coming in so that we can start uh, developing and finishing off all this cool content. Um, it's about a roughly year-long process to make one of these books. Well, that's that certainly sounds daunting, but... You guys obviously make it happen, and uh, you have just released a, a very new product called the Starship Operations Manual. So let's oh, talk yeah. about that for a little while, huh? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it just released. It's it's chock full of new options, rules, and ideas for Starfinder players to use to enhance kind of the Starship's role in their games. Um, in a lot of ways, it feels like this is sort of completes the kind of the, the the concepts that were presented in the CRB it really f- fleshes out the starship role so you know what went through you guys' mind your head like how did, how did you come up with the starship operations manual you know when did you decide we need to we need to expand upon this and how did you go about doing it i think that the idea of having a dedicated starship product of some form basically lived in the in the Starfinder team's mind even as the Starfinder Coral rulebook was being finished off and, and sent to the printer. Uh, it was sort of a question of when, because there were so many things that they wanted to get done in the meantime. Um, so Starship Operations Manual is a product that was part way through its production by the time I joined the team, uh, almost exactly a year ago, about 13 months at this point. Um, and we had... The product went through a couple of odd bumps uh, because there was a lot of changeover in our team composition at that time. Um, And the product itself had been concepted as something slightly different. Um, More of a a re-envisioning of some of how Starship Combat might operate and and even a different scope of type of product. So by the time I came on, uh, there was a lot of sort of head scratching and and questioning, is is that exactly the direction that we wanted to take it? The answer ended up being, "Mm, not not quite. Also, hey, John, you're here. Uh, You're also you're going to be the lead on this book. Uh, Happy birthday. Um, (laughs) What are you going to do with it? (laughs) Exactly. What are you going to do with it? So um, the 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 thing that I pitched that was already kind of fermenting in people's minds anyway was let's let's turn this into a hardcover book uh, like many of our other products and and use that space to explore not only the starship concepts that had already been assigned to several authors and we'd already gotten in the text for it but uh, because it was going to be a different type of book then it suddenly opened up about mm, 
almost twice as many pages for me to play with. So uh, I assigned a second wave of, uh, of these chapters. So the first chunk was very rules heavy. And when I was looking at this, I was saying, okay, one of the things that um, has lightly frustrated me with Starfinder up until that point was we have just the one product line. Uh, we, we don't have like campaign setting books, for example, like the soft cover ones for Path, that Pathfinder First Edition did. We didn't have player companion books. So we don't have as many auxiliary places to go into detail about like, how does the setting work? We have to fit that in among everything else that we're, we're doing. There are some back matter mm -hmm. articles and adventure paths, but just not the same quantity that Pathfinder had to play with. So yeah. what I very much wanted to see happen with Starship Operations Manual, and to an extent this is true with Tech Revolution as well, is to explore setting-based articles um, that are going to expand on what we know about the galaxy, even as they are playing to the theme of this book. So the manufacturer entries in Starship Operations oh, Manual are yeah. one of the first things that I added to it. The sample starships are something that, kind of as a group, we said, yeah, we would like to have some more sample starships, but making sure that each one of them had this full biography to it and this uh, lineage of, like, what were the design challenges in world or, like, <laughs> what was the controversy about the starship uh, and things like that, where each starship tells a story um, is more of something that I was pushing for. Uh, and also, uh, because I was coming from a Starfinder Society background, uh, along with Thurston Hillman, uh, who uh, does a lot of Starfinder Society work now, um, and from the beginning, really, we had a lot of experience with Starship combat and scenarios where we were constantly looking at the options that were available in Starship combat and saying, okay, this part is cool, this part is neat, these rules incentivize this kind of behavior, which is cool the first time, but then, you know, can get a little bit dull. Like, turtling, uh, as it's yeah. called, where it's like, well, shields are cheap, turrets are cheap. Why do I care about arcs when I can just have two missile launchers on a turret and 600 shields get ready? Right. Um, <laughs> so the back of the book is all about creating Starship-related campaigns, about oh, making new styles of Starship encounters uh, so that you can make it more about about something more than just who reaches zero hull points first. So you can turn Starship Combat into more than just a numbers game, but more of a narrative device. So just as much as the first half of the book is saying, okay, you want new weapons? New weapons! Uh, the second half is very much, okay, you want to tell cool stories with this? Let's expand on what you might already know how to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, You know, reading through the book, I was I was surprised at how much of the book is dedicated to expanding the lore of the Starfinder universe and, and like the role of the starship in that universe. Not so much the role of it in combat, but the role of starships. Like we're in a world where starships are a thing, and because starships are a thing, there's all this that's around it, you know. And there is just so much information in that book that helps, kind of qualify the starship in a way that makes it feel less like a mini game and more like an integral part of the whole experience yeah well and when it comes to the setting itself um like compared to pathfinder which has again a lot more pages to explore had a lot more years to do it um but is also on a more intimate scale 
where we are in a town. We are in a country. Even we're in the inner sea region, but hey, we could walk somewhere else if we wanted to. Starfinder is in a galaxy. Mm -hmm. Everything feels like such a large scale. And it takes a conscious effort to remind players and GMs and readers that there is a human or human level for whatever alien species you might be experience that's really easy to gloss over. Like, there are many Star Trek level stories where let's expand what our relationships are as a crew compared to when you look at a galaxy level that you start thinking in a Star Wars term where it's like, what is the story here? Galactic War! Okay, but are we doing anything else? No, Galactic War! Um, But what are the people doing? What is the story behind this ship? Uh, We have such possibilities. Yeah, it's uh, I think the the starship is is a vehicle, you know, quite obviously a vehicle, right? But in a metaphorical sense as well, for for getting you um, into a a place to to tell these narratives, people focused, your humanoid focused in in the Starfinder sense, stories, and um, it's it's such an important such an important part that I think it uh, it really warranted its own sort of uh, hardcover its its own expansion of the rules and, and it's it's really awesome to see it and and, and the back matter uh, or the the back section of the book that um, kind of expands how to make a, a more narrative focused story out of these starship aspects I think is is fantastic for just increasing the variety and the depth of the stories that you can tell within this system. Mm-hmm. So what are some of your favorite features uh, in the Starship Operations Manual, John? Uh, Just so personal are, favorites. I mean, uh, there, there are a lot of things that I really love in here. One of them is uh, I love having boarding. Like Boarding is such a, an iconic bit of vehicle-to-vehicle combat that uh, the base rules simply did not accommodate. Uh, And with boarding comes ramming, comes uh, entry pods and uh, things like that. So I'm very excited about that. I'm really uh, happy that we were able to fit in an optional system, which which sets basically budgets for your various starship systems. So rather than being able to blow all of your uh, points on a nuclear missile launcher and shields, and then you don't need anything else, do you? Um, right. It sort of sets these uh, artificial limitations that say, you know what, this is a healthy amount to spend on shields for which you will have a fairly balanced starship combat experience against other things. Like, if you really want to, yes, you can win starship design based on the rules as printed. But mm-hmm. these set out sort of percentage-based budgets to say, probably don't go over this level. Not only does this uh, convey to players what is probably more tasteful design, but it gives a GM more more explicit permission to put these limits in place. And that's one of the things where, like, the more that you play with different groups, the more that you find different standards for, like, permission. Like, some people will look at an RPG and they will say, well, it says in the front, these are all guidelines, so... I'll do what I want with it. <laughs> you know? And you know, power to them. Great. Tell the story you want to. I'm not here to come in and, uh, and take away your books and say, you're doing it wrong. Um, and other people will say, well, it doesn't actually say that you can do this thing. Um, and, and they will wait for explicit permission. Or they will, or the GM will freeze because the players are saying, like, 
you should let us do this thing. And the GM looks for anything that says, please defend me, Paizo. <laughs> I don't see anywhere in the book where it says I can't spend all my money on three nukes and, and 500 shields. I mean, exactly. you're right, but like that ship looks crazy, right? Like that's yeah. a crazy ship. Like, oh. Your beds are sleeping on these missiles. Like you didn't right, even right, have, right. you didn't even have enough left over for hammocks. Um, well, well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, there there are so much more to the starship than just your shields and your weaponry, right? There's there's tons of different bays that you can add. There's tons of different rooms, and there's tons of stories that can be told on the ship, and and these extra things that aren't necessarily combat focused can provide a space to tell these stories. I know that in, in our games, we've had some really narratively important moments take place on on the ship, in, in training rooms, you know, in various places like that. So it's important not to just throw everything at your shields, at your weapons, because there's a lot more to them. Well, yeah, your ship is, is going to be your environment, for a good chunk of the actual in-game time, you know, you could you could hand wave it all and say, okay, I rolled four d six or whatever it is for the drift travel piloting check. Okay, I'm going to be in drift for twenty days. All right, twenty days later, for us, it's like, well, that's that's crew getting to know each other time. Like they're trapped in a bucket for twenty days. What are they doing in there? There's so much story juice to get from there. And as Zach said, if we didn't have the various expansion bays that like had a place for these scenes to happen they would all be talking about their lives around while leaning on nuclear missiles and it just doesn't have the same kind of resonance you know (laughs) right absolutely so what about was there any material that did not make it into the psalm that you would like to have seen make it or may make it into future uh entries I don't remember anything that uh, we weren't able to include in some capacity. It was really more a matter of scale. So I would I would love to be able to make books upon books upon books that are largely setting material. I find, like, in my evolution as a gamer, um, the first two-thirds or so of my life or more uh, were very much rules-based, where I'd like, grab the latest D&D 3.0 book, and I'd immediately just search for feats, look for feats. Where are the new prestige classes? Done. And there'd be like sample builds or setting bits, and I'd be like, yeah, filler. Um, <laughs> you know, give, give me the latest thing I can exploit. Um, mm-hmm. And even early on in Pathfinder, I was kind of like that. But the more that I have grown as a developer, the more that I look to setting stuff, and I say, no, that's the really exciting stuff to, to read over and develop and create. And especially in Starfinder, where there's limitless potential. We could create a million books of planets and say that it's still only 1% of our galaxy if we were to find. Creating larger manufacturer entries, creating more of those sample starships, um, creating like eight-page articles about starship racing culture. Any of that would be fantastic uh, and would be so cool to explore. And on top of that, uh, is allows us to bring in more and more authors with cool expertises and background hobbies and like that can share that enthusiasm with our audience. Um, so the more that we could include, the better. But 160 pages is a is yeah. a cruel limit 
<laughs> well, I mean, you got a lot in there. I, I, as as was alluded to earlier, you know, the it feels like it kind of completes what what was set forth in the CRB in a way. And, and to that, there's a lot of great advice in the book about how to bring starship combat itself to life, both as a GM and as players. You know, there's talk of cinematic descriptions and environmental hazards, memorable enemies. These are all really great tools to use. Um, I wanted to ask you, because I know that you do run a lot of games and I'm sure you've run quite a bit of Starship Combat yourself. What are some of the things that you do to bring extra life to Starship Combat? Part of it is about giving a good ex- or setting a good example for what you expect in terms of area. And this goes for Starship Combat and just combats in general. And even role-playing situation. All, all of all of the table experience is about setting a good example, especially as a GM, but even as a player. You can infect others with those positive vibes. Um, so when it's Starship Combat, it's really easy to say, ah, gunnery is 19. Okay, that misses. All right, well, the other gun was uh, 22. That hits. Seven damage. Done. Cool. It's off of the port. Um, but you need to build in some narrative to that. And you can start as a GM by narrating what the experience is to be hit by laser fire for your starship. You know, you go back to, like, Star Trek scenes where the ship gets hit. Everybody on the bridge goes, whoa! Um, <laughs> yeah, rocking. Yeah. And, uh, like, that, that is the starting point for understanding starship combat narrative, is to understand that any of these numbers have consequences. It's not just everybody calmly looking at each other being like, have you have you finished science officering yet? Yes, Captain, we're done science officering. Okay! Um, but, uh, <laughs> The more that you do those descriptions, uh, the more that you can then look to players and say, okay, your ship just got hit for 22 points of damage. Uh, Okay, well, that's 11 points of shield, 11 point of hull. Okay, so your hull has taken damage. Like, what does that look like? You You can give these leading prompts to people, or you can point to somebody and say, all right, a hit in the port. Uh, engineer, you're down there working on the engines. Uh, sparks are flying, and how, how's how's it looking down in engineering? What's your experience down there? Uh, because that also helps you to moderate whether there are especially talkative people at the table who might otherwise dominate the experience to say, your turn. Um, <laughs> and you can do that with role-playing scenes, uh, whether it is you as the GM controlling it or whether it's your NPCs controlling it, saying, I've heard enough from you. What about you? I always was told to treat or to trust the silent types or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, you come up with whatever BS reasons you want to. Um, but all those strategies play well into Starship Combat to make the numbers mean something in the setting. <clears throat> what are the consequences? And what it, especially for starships, um, think back to various forms of media, Star Wars, sure, but Star Trek, again, is sort of the one of the go-tos for me. There's banter. There's like always banter, whether it is um, the pl- sometimes like when I'm playing in Starfinder Society, my characters oftentimes end up in kind of captain roles, and so I'm not really doing a lot. But it gives me a it gives me a perch to sort of shout at other players and be like, "What the heck's going on down there?" and invite them to role play back with me. Right, right. You open those opportunities. Yeah, or you yeah, can, think- you can taunt the other starships as well. And as the GM, you can just open a channel and be like. Looks like your missiles aren't functioning well. <laughs> so, uh, piss off the players a little bit because that'll that'll light a fire on them. For sure. Yeah, I think that's something that I know that Adam was was very specific about when we started playing Starfinder and recording it for a podcast. Was 
you guys need to role play during Starship. He's like, you're going to enjoy it more. The listener's going to get more out of it. Everyone's going to have a better time. If you guys don't just, like you were saying, 19, okay, you know, that's a miss. You really get into it. The, the, the banter is some of my favorite part of doing Starship combat. You know, like our captain, Adam required he said if you're going to intimidate or if you're going to encourage i want to hear what that is i want to hear that specific encouragement or how are you going to actually do that don't just say you do it like give me the character's voice uh describe their actions and that sort of thing and i think that really enriches the experience and makes it more than just a mini game it's an extension of it's an extension of the game and it's important that you that you buy in you know, I think that's it's 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 a crucial part, and um, it makes the it makes it a lot better because uh, you know there's certainly been critiques of Starship Combat that it's you know not everyone's favorite part of Starfinder, and I think the reason it isn't is because you you know people aren't really digging in and on that. Yeah, and and one of the things that you can do as far as description goes as well is imagine all the imagine all the different types of imagery that you can use, whether it's similes and metaphors, but even things like metonymy, um, where you can have, as players become more attached to their starship and are like, you can ask them, like, what, what have you added? What have you upgraded? What's your special touch? I'm like, well, I, I added racing stripes. Cool. So the starship has a paint job. You can then use that as sort of a, a an imagery tool and you can say, all right, they hit you with the missiles. Uh, they do this much damage. Um, all right, well, that got through our shields. And, you can, and then you can just sort of pause the action lean in toward the character who added the racing stripes and be like, they scratched your paint. Right. Um, right. <laughs> oh, it's over. Open up a comms channel. And, and then suddenly the science officer's like, that's it, I'm being a gunner now. It's like, no, we need you on science officer. Gunner! <laughs> they scratched my paint. I think, uh, what, you know, one last thing on, on this bit here is to, when you go into star, Starship Combat, the, the players should realize that the turns are about the crew taking a turn together as opposed to each player waiting for their turn to do something. If, cause it's not, cause in combat it is like that, right? It's like, what are you doing in this six seconds? And, and you're waiting as the turn order kind of goes through. Whereas in starship combat, if you treat it with that same kind of like prescribed ranking of order, you know, then it, it can feel dry. You're just waiting around until it comes to your phase. But if you're talking about the entire turn, you know, all three phases of the, of the, of the round of starship combat as a crew. And like, as you know, to again, use star Trek as the example is that we are a bridge crew. Who's operating this huge ship. That's like, it takes all of us to make this one thing work and do this, you know, this one round of actions it takes the entire crew and so your starship is taking a turn as opposed to your individual is taking a turn you know the crew takes a turn together and i think that helps kind of get everybody invested in all the phases a little bit yeah absolutely it's in and, and the for what it's worth the psalm adds so many new great supplements to starship combat that it's it's absolutely an, an essential get i think for any starfinder player but i kind of want to shift gears and let's talk about some future content real quick so there is a new playtest 
that is currently live. John, will you give us a quick rundown of kind of some of the things that are in the new playtest? Sure. So we have a book coming up in the middle of 2021 called Tech Revolution, which is a very technology-focused side of Starfinder. Um, and so we have two different things that we're playtesting. Paizo has a long tradition of playtesting any of our new classes. So um, we did it for uh, the character operations manual classes, for example. We're doing it here with Tech Revolution. But rather than introducing three classes, we're focusing on one here. Uh, and it is called the Nanosite. The Nanosite is a character who is who hosts a swarm of nanite robots or biological entities or whatever they happen to be inside their body and can expel them into clouds to attack their enemies. They can use them to reinforce their body and sort of turn into kind of a cybernetic individual temporarily. Or they can even flood their nanites out and say, you're nanites, you know how to build things, make me a gun. And the nanites can create tools or weapons as well. So it is a very flexible class that is constitution-based and um, is very much a short to mid-range combatant-style character where they very much thrive on being nearby the enemies and creating these uh, temporary control zones and the like to, to control the flow of battle. Very cool. And now, Tech Revolution is also going to include some some mech rules, right? That's right. Uh, so, in addition to uh, understanding that Starship Starship books would eventually be in the future, uh, one of the early bits of feedback that we got, like day one in Starfinder, was "Where are my mechs? Come on, <laughs> it's sci-fi. Give me mechs. Um, yeah. Where can I have a Gundam? Well, we have power armor. Not good enough. Uh, you know, they say <laughs> knocking over our, our display of core rules. Uh, where, where, where is my battle tech? And so, like, we have powered armor, which is basically like your Space Marine-style armor, where it is very much you are wearing this thing. It is responding to your body movements because you, you like have an arm in each one of the arms. Um, right. And even though there were like one or two really big powered armors, uh, it was still very much something where when it got hit, you were the one taking the damage. Whereas when we look at vehicles in Starfinder, you target the vehicle. The vehicle has hit points. The vehicle has hardness. So to really capture what mechs are, um, which is a complicated point that we'll get to in just a sec, we had to really <laughs> go for something in between power armor and vehicles because they're a weird fusion. And I say what a mech is because there are so many different versions of mechs. They, they kind of get broken into like Eastern and Western style where Western style mechs might be something like Battletech where it is a stompy robot. It has guns for arms. It is a little bit clunky but and tank-like, um, but cool. And then more of an Eastern style or anime style where this is like Gundam Gundams, where you're- right. yeah. Yeah, where like your mech can fly where your mech could do a backflip and nobody would blink an eye. Where you're... Engage in melee combat. Exactly. If you will. Yeah. Um, and so, these are two different trope families that don't always play together. But Starfinder is very much a game where we want you to be able to play basically whatever sci-fi trope you want to. So, right. mechs have been doing some really heavy lifting, figuratively and literally here, yeah. um, to try and hit as many of these different uh, concepts as possible. Uh, so we do have uh, mech design and combat um, that, that addresses a lot of these. Uh, and we're playtesting that as well, because it's a system where, like, you have you can have multiple pilots. There are some elements and inspirations and lessons from Starship Combat that go into this, 
even though it plays out very differently from Starship Combat. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I kind of want to. I kind of want to talk a little bit about Nanosite and, and a little bit about Mechs. But before we do that, um, can you talk a little bit about playtesting in general? Like, what what's the best way to provide feedback to you and your team? Um, and you know, what types of information do you find is the most interesting or useful or helpful for you guys uh, when people are giving you feedback on playtests? Yeah. So uh, we have had. We've done uh, surveys online for our playtest for the past several years. Um, so you'll be able to uh, look up the Pathfinder playtest, or sorry, the Starfinder playtest, excuse me. Um, and it has this whole page with a downloadable PDF. Don't have to log in or anything to download it for download. Um, and that has both the nanosite and the Mac uh, stuff in it. There are also links to our SurveyMonkey surveys uh, that will allow you to answer some quick multiple choice questions about your experience with one or the other. Um, you can have read over the document and said, that's as far as I'm interested in going on the playtest because I'm a busy person. I only have so much time. That's cool. Um, <clears throat> or if you want, you can run through lots of little stress tests. You can incorporate a nanosite into your ongoing campaign. You could say, pause everything. Let's do like three mech combats in a row, whatever it is. Uh, that will all <laughs> give us cool feedback. Uh, that very much helps us understand what is working well, what is easy to understand, uh, what is easy to use, and what might be less so for any of those categories. Um, and there's also a free response section at the end, so if you just want to write up an essay for it to us, then you can do that too. Also on Paizo.com, there is a playtest section of our message boards, uh, in the Greater Starfinder message boards, where you can post questions, you can post your play experiences, you can interact with other folks who are part of the playtest, uh, and make your opinions known there as well. But the main thing is we want to make sure that you're providing that through these surveys, uh, because that is something where we can more easily aggregate the, uh, the results, and mm -hmm. we can look at everything side by side and know that we're not missing anything. Awesome. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit individually about the, the two things that we're playtesting this month. And... and um, for me, one thing that's always fascinated me is the idea of creating a class. And with Starfinder, I mean, from the get-go, it was creating new class archetypes from, from the ground up. You know, whereas Pathfinder, a lot of those core classes kind of lean on historical things that come from D&D &D and stuff like, and, you know, the, the Tolkien-style base classes. Whereas in Starfinder, you guys came up with a whole litany of new new things and then we added the character operations manual and I was you know thinking about well where do they go with classes from here and I, I myself am like okay well what what space hasn't been filled in the sci-fi world that, that doesn't stop on which wouldn't just be an extension of one of the pre-existing classes and so with the nanosite coming on which is ended up being a lot different than what I thought it would be just when we first heard it announced, you know. I, my first thought was like, oh, I feel like this is kind of almost technomancery, but then it comes out and it's a constitution-based class and has a lot of different things going on that are not at all technomancery. This is a good opportunity to just kind of discuss how, how do you go into creating a class and making sure that it stands out on its own. So there are different things that we look for when we are pitching new classes or saying it's time to make a new class. Uh, one of them is making sure that it has a really clean elevator pitch. Like 
in a sentence or two, what does this thing do? Um, and then you have to look at uh, where it fits within the greater design space of the system. So if, for example, we we wanted to make more technological classes, like the nanosite is at, at its core, um, we have to make sure that it is feeling distinct from the technomancer, that it feels distinct from the mechanic, that even if, as it feels distinct, that mechanically it is doing something different from those and is also not overshadowing any of the existing like main design thrusts that any of the other classes do. So we wouldn't want to make a nanosite that is all about creating technological companions that is basically going to feel like you've made a drone because that mm -hmm. is the mechanic's job. Um, so those, those are things we want to do. Uh, Starfinder classes have key ability scores. Part of designing new classes is looking at like, what is the current spread of ability scores and saying, does that inspire new design space? Like we don't have very much strength-based key ability score stuff going on. Um, so who knows? You know, maybe there's a future class out there that we'd look at and we'd say, here's our challenge to ourselves. Let's make something that is strength-based. Where can we go from here? Mm -hmm. um, but even it's a matter of looking at tropes and saying, is there a sci-fi trope that we've not filled? And nanites is sort of one of those magic hand wavium elements that shows up in a lot of sci-fi and other things where it's like, how can we get out of this situation this episode? Nanites? Oh, yeah, nanites. Right. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I mean, to do that, can you talk about some of the particular things that inspired the nanosite specifically? Sure. Like, I mean, I just mentioned, like, nanites are one of those things that show up a whole bunch, and they are frequently used as a, a narrative crutch in a lot mm -hmm. of stories. And so nanites are responsible for so many powers out there that... There's not only a lot to draw from, but there's also a lot of responsibility of, are we fulfilling the majority of these concepts that people can say, nanite character, I want to redesign this thing. Like uh, Generation Rex uh, is a cartoon that I did not really know about before. We announced the class and everybody's like, so I can make Generation Rex? I'm like, who the yeah, hell is Yeah, I'm not familiar Rex? with that myself. <laughs> I have to go look, check it out. Yeah, um, <clears throat> which, I mean, I, I watched an episode or two of that afterward and I was like, well, Okay, kind of. Um, that character seems to be like, I have nanites that can do anything. So what do you do with them? I turn my arms into bricks and I hit people. Dragnabbit. Um, like, you have so many more options. Sometimes my arms turn into a motorcycle. That's more acceptable. Um, so there, there's that. Um, but, uh, but also, like, you can't make so many things that people get lost. Right. Class. And and to an extent, like the class is flirting with that point. There's a lot going on right now, and, and there's a good chance that we'll have to look at some of these features and say, okay, like, does this need to stay? Uh, is this giving is this class as a whole as we present you giving it the the fun experience, but also the accessible experience that we would want it to have? Right. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Well, so yeah, I think I think nanocide is in, really interesting. I also like that it's a constitution based class yeah, because uh, I, I think that those are always neat, you know, to have con based classes. But uh, with with mechs, I, I I gotta say, as somebody who grew up watching Gundam and everything like that, I am I am personally very excited for mechs. I can't wait to see how they're implemented. Do you think that we'll have? kind of mech-focused adventures or anything like that in the future? Maybe modules, something like that? Certainly mechs open us up to that space. Um, one of the things that 
uh, we were doing with mechs. Um, and this was partly as our Starfinder team concepting before Amanda Hammond and I broke off to do the design itself, is we wanted to avoid making an entirely new level of play. Like Starship Combat sure. is an entirely distinct system from your five foot square tactical grid. Definitely, um, yeah. And so when Starship Combat happens for the first time with a group, you have to pause and be like, let's learn for at least 15 minutes. Yeah, right, yeah, right. definitely. It That's was like that for us too. <laughs> yeah. and, and one of the goals that we wanted to have here was to make sure that mech combat was going to be close enough to one of those two spheres of play that when mech combat happens, the GM could say, here's a quick several minute primer, but otherwise it's like what you already know. And so in this case, we went with um, the, the square grid tactical combat where it's like when you're on foot. Um, as our baseline, so that way there are still attacks of opportunity, there are still standard actions and move actions and things like that, so that the majority of what's happening in mech combat is familiar enough that you can learn the differences and then just run. Um, so to get to that question that you asked, um, one of the things that this version of mech combat allows us to do is to drop in a single encounter with mechs in the middle of a bigger campaign and say, you know what, all you need is a little bit of a primer here and then otherwise run with it. And because me uh, mechs are designed to be roughly three levels more powerful than characters of the same level, then it allows you to do these cool set-piece encounters against foes yeah. or giant things that would be way beyond your character's defeat. But with mechs, you suddenly can... Uh, step up to that level for however long you have those mechs and then disembark and go back to whatever you were doing. So it's totally conceivable that we could have an adventure that has a one-shot mech encounter. It's also yeah. totally conceivable that we could have um, like, let's say that we did some modules like Pathfinder has where it's like 64 pages, 96 pages or something like that. Conceivably, we could also do a mech module where it's like, okay folks, uh, session zero, understand that you're going to be doing like somewhere between three to ten mech encounters over the course of this 20-hour experience. Um, so make sure that the characters that you design would not feel out of water with doing mechs, and that way the players yeah. can also familiarize <laughs> themselves with the rules. And when mech combat happens, they'd be like, yeah, this is what we planned for! Yeah. <laughs> um, and they can build their mechs uh, to customize them, rather than for a one-shot thing, oftentimes it's more effective to say, like, all right, you've chased the opposition into this warehouse, uh, it's a shooting fight, and whoa, there's a mech over there. Oh, I want to break into it! I want to break into it! Cool! Let's break into it, and you can play around with a mech for this encounter. Totally cool. Nice. nice. Yeah, yeah, so with Starfinder being a relatively new system, you know, it continues to expand each year, and what I love about it are all of these possibilities that it has being being sci-fi you know we've, we've discussed these things uh earlier just the potential that it has so there's a lot left unexplored what are you most excited about for the future of starfinder i'm excited about um ways that we are looking at how we build books and finding ways to include new and exciting forms of information that we have not explored as much in the past and in past formats. Um, so Joe Pacini, for example, is lead on Galaxy Exploration Manual, which mm. is a completely different approach 
to a book than what we've done with any of our other Starfinder books. Um, Tech Revolution, uh, since that's one that I was able to sort of build from the uh, beginning, is one where we can explore certain types of articles that we have just really not done in other books. And so I'm excited to see how we can expand on setting material in our books in formats that we haven't done as much. Because um, every one of our books expands on the setting in some way. Um, like Pact Worlds is sort of Gazetteer-like, but even things like Alien Archives yeah. have little nuggets of setting oh, built into each one of the creatures. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but when we look at a tech book or something like Starship Operations Manual, we can say, well, Starships, <laughs> like, okay, it's going to be a bunch of pew-pew and dice rolling. Um, but we were able to build in a lot of narrative and setting content by working with the theme rather than just playing to the mechanical side of it. And I'm excited sure. to see how we can do that in Tech Revolution, in Galaxy Exploration Manual, and our books going forward. So that's something that um, when it comes to leaving reviews or letting the team and Paizo know what you do and don't like about our books, we'd love to hear critique about the structure of how we're assembling these things and what types of information and articles we're including in these, because that helps to inform what we do in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing that I would like to see, uh, you know, when I look at Pathfinder and I look at these these modules like Fall of Plague Stone or the Slithering, and, and they're great opportunities to play a fully developed adventure within a system without committing to a three or six book AP. Do you guys have any plans maybe for for modules for Starfinder? I know I would love to see something like that. Same. Yeah, I mean, uh, adventures are always something we're looking to innovate with. Um, certainly, the team has been doing a lot of work to try and get as much material out there as possible, and yeah, modules are always something we're talking about, but like, at this point in time, if there are any announcements as far as new adventure formats, you're going to hear about more of uh, more about them on Pizer.com. Um, <laughs> yeah. We're going to release a blog <laughs> or the like saying, Hot diggity damn, sure. did you hear that we're doing XYZ? Um, right, or also yeah. at uh, some of our large convention panels, uh, like we do Gen Con and PaizoCon are oftentimes opportunities for us to announce upcoming products. Uh, those are the formats where you're most likely to hear about the things, but I can tell you that, you know, modules are an absolutely fantastic format, and the more that, uh, <laughs> the more that my time goes into creating RPGs, uh, sadly, the less time I oftentimes have to play them. And so <laughs> modules are really attractive to me as our organized play scenarios because they are they are something that I know I can finish, whereas right. an AP is something that my home group will play for about three or four years. So it's a big <laughs> commitment. It is. That's 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 the, the primary thing that, that I think uh, we need in Starfinder is something that we can introduce people to the system without such a long commitment you know i mean and, uh, to, to that point i will say one thing that starfinder did introduce you know that pathfinder um didn't have um and doesn't have but i think is currently going to have or is coming up with having is the three book ap and i really am a big fan of the three book ap structure because it feels like you can t uh, tell a tighter narrative you know like a real much more thematic like one, two, three, three act kind of story. Um, and I think that works really well for Starfinder because sci-fi is a little bit more pulpy sometimes. And so you can get, you, you can 
kind of have these little mini adventures. And, and I, I just want to, while well, I got you here, to tell anybody that's listening <laughs> at just work. Just plant the that, seeds. That, yeah, yeah. yeah, the three-book APs are great. And, and I think it's a good alternative to the six-book, because the six-books are fun, but they are a long commitment. Whereas the three book is a, is not quite as much. And, and as I said, so far, the stories that are told in those seem really focused, you know. I really love the three volume format. And uh, we've definitely had some APs where six volumes is a perfect size. And every one of the volumes is doing something really right. cool. Sometimes you get these really epic storylines where you look at it and you say, we have really strong ideas for four of these. And then you make the other two work or something like that. Or as players, you are playing through things and you say, okay, I feel like we're, we're stretching here or I ran out of steam on book four or this could have been cool wrapped up in volume three. Like uh, Kingmaker is a really cool adventure path that like from volume one through six is phenomenal. Um, mm -hmm. But if you look at the structure of the volumes, you could have taken volumes one through three and played a perfectly self-encapsulated storyline and finished it there. And it would feel like a complete story. Yeah. Um, so I think there, I, I really enjoy taking some of the big ideas and examining what they would look like in something more concise. So like, I'm not in charge of APs by any means. Right. So, um, <laughs> but every time that I get the chance, I say, we could also do a three volume thing. <laughs> but but there's, there's certainly, um, there's a degree of strategy to when we do the three volume APs, uh, right. there's a certain degree of uh, using them to make it so the Pathfinder and Starfinder are launching adventure paths at different times so that like our marketing is not tripping over one or the other so it's like right. new starfinder but, oh did you hear about the pathfinder one? Oh, <laughs> you know? um, yeah let's just juggle things better yeah Good yeah deal. well john i i want to say that uh you know we have very much enjoyed starfinder everything that it brings all the new flavors that it has and uh we love all the work that you guys are doing at paizo it's it's just been an incredible honor uh, just to get to have you and pick your brain about this, but I think we've taken up enough of your time already, so uh, you got any final thoughts? Where can people find you? Anything you're working on that you want to plug real quick that we haven't covered? I mean, I'm always uh, writing a whole bunch of cool things. Uh, recently released uh, Starfinder Society 3-04 Falling into Deliverance, uh, which is a level 5-8 to eight scenario. Um, that's been an absolute blast. The structure of it's really cool. Um, we're, I'm looking forward to several of the other things I'm writing for coming out, uh, but really uh, check out you can find me on several different Discord servers, I'm on the Starfinder RPG one as well as the Pathfinder RPG one in various lore channels and general chats and you can find me on Twitter at Archaeotag, A-R-C-H A-E-O-T-A-G-H Alright John Compton, thanks so much for coming thanks, on John. Have a lovely evening and we'll catch you guys next time on STFU Thank you very much.